Thank you, God. Father, you remind us that there is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. So God, let us today, as we engage you, as you engage us, as you show yourself to us, show us that name. Show us Jesus. Don't show us our names. Don't show us this church's name. Don't show us this city's name. Show us your name. Let everything we learn be to your glory. Everything that we do be to your glory. God, make this not about us. Make this service not about us. Make this sermon not about us. Let this be about you, about making your name famous for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Maybe seated kids, you are dismissed. Good afternoon. It's, uh, as we know, this is a day that Every day is a day that we have to, first of all, fight for what it means to have joy, right? The scriptures don't promise us to be happy all the time, but it says we indeed can be joyful all the time. And so how do, how do we find joy in times that can be very difficult, very heartbreaking, very uh, things for which we mourn? A year ago today, as we've alluded to even in our prayer, uh, Heather Heyer was killed uh, while she was acting as an anti-racism activist in Charlottesville, Virginia. And we know that uh, during that time, there were uh, major kind of white supremacist uh, act, act, activists that were um, out, and they, they met with anti-racist activists, and lots of violence occurred, and lots of things came out, lots of things were said. And here we are one year later, and there's yet another rally that's happening. There are more conversations that are happening, and the question always comes up, wh where is the church? What's supposed to be the church's response? Like, are we supposed to have like an unhealthy optimism, which is what some churches go into? Things that we know that are true, God is still on the throne, and we know who's in charge, and we know who has the power, so we can rest in that, but, that, but does that absolve us from the mourning that we're called to as well? But also, do we mourn on this side? without any hope of anything else? How do we respond to that? Now, that's, that's a fair question that we all ask. That's a fair question that we need to engage. How, how do we respond when we see things that are happening over there? How did the church respond last year? Now, that depends on what church you were in, didn't it? I mean, ultimately, the response to what happened last year was just as segregated as the congregations are often segregated at 11 o'clock on every Sunday morning. So there are cert certain churches that there were no question people were going to say something about it because they knew it had arrested the collective consciousness of the folks in their church. And then there were other churches where there was just nothing said at all. It was just business as usual. Everything is going forward. There's nothing to mourn, nothing to be said. If there is something to mourn, make sure that you mourn it privately. Make sure you mourn it on your own. Deal with it, but make sure there's no bitterness. <laughs> So, so what was the right response? How, how were we supposed to respond? How were we supposed to engage? What should be the response of the church? This is a better question. What should be the response of the church to white supremacy? Now, this was an incredibly provocative title, and I'm sure there are some people that saw it and said, I ain't going to church today. <laughs> there are some people that came kind of holding on to the clutch in their pearls, Real nervous about what's getting ready to come out. There are people who are like, I don't know if I really want to get into this because this is going to be really tough. It's really difficult. There are some of us don't, that don't like it because 
depending on our background or the, the circles that we run in, it might get too real and we might feel some things that might hit us. I hope that all of us, at any time that we're sitting in a sermon, anytime we're hearing the word of God uh, uh, preached and taught, all of us, I hope that we find ourselves being exposed just a little bit. But be aware, exposure can often feel like assault. So when you find yourself being exposed, if you find yourself being exposed, and you find yourself immediately getting defensive, ask yourself the question, am I being defensive because I'm being assaulted, or am I being exposed? That's the question we have to ask, not just of this sermon, not just of the text we're in, any text, right? We don't just read the scriptures, the scriptures read us. So it's vitally important that we ask ourselves this question as we engage with this idea of what white supremacy is. And we have to respond to it because guess what? Everybody outside of these doors are talking about it. And if the church, sadly, the church has often been the last place that you would hear anything addressed on this issue. So you're left to think the gospel must have nothing to say on this. You're left to assume that honestly, there's nothing the church has to say, which means if I'm struggling with areas of white supremacy that I've either been hurt by, this isn't the place to share my pain. This isn't the safe place for me to find friendships and family because they won't even talk about it here. I'll never forget after, um, after what happened last year, there were a lot of people, people in this church that were, that were mourning, that were heavy hearted. We have people that have very close roots to Charlottesville area, folks that went to school there, folks that are from there, people that uh, were heavy hearted and were looking for something. How do we talk about this? What, where do I go? And yet there's a very prominent church here in Atlanta, very big, wonderful, lots of great things going. And the only thing that was posted to the social media was, what a perfect weekend we had. What was your favorite part? Now, when you, if you don't see the difference, just how segregated we truly are in our pain, our pain is segregated. We can't even begin to mourn, as the Bible says, with those who mourn, because we've segregated ourselves away from the mourning of others. So when a topic like white supremacy comes up, what are you prone to do? Are you prone to dig your heels into wherever you might, might be politically, whether rapidly ready to jump in and fight or immediately hide or go away or say that's just a bunch of garbage that people are making up? Like, where does your mind go and where does the gospel command and mandate that you go? That's where we're forced to go now. And I wish I could say that we could sit and deal with every single issue here. I can promise you, nobody's going to feel like we got everything we needed out of this. Because it ta- And here's the thing, we would be wrong and we would be ignorant to think we could solve it in one sermon because it took 400 years to get here. It's going to take a lot longer than 45 minutes to end it. But we need to be able to have shared language to talk about it, to mourn it, and then agree on what do we do as a church to combat it. I think that One of the reasons why this is so big is that there are a lot of people, I know folks here in this church and other churches who have felt like, I don't know that I feel safe in church anymore. Some don't. I don't know that I feel safe because I feel like that there's no way to communicate this pain, this uncertainty. I don't know that this is a place where I'm going to hear it communicated from the pulpit, and so I'm not sure that this is safe. I feel like that, that many people here They hear the church being silent on certain things, but they know the church is capable of opening her mouth because there are certain issues, whether politically or otherwise, 
that it is very in vogue to speak out very vociferously from the pulpit. There are certain topics that if we brought up, everybody would go, yeah, talk about that, depending on the circles that we're in. Talk about that. That's good. Talk about that particular issue. Yes, as Christians, we should talk about that. But when we come to this one, this is when there's relative silence. Martin Luther King said that oftentimes silence feels like betrayal. So there are people, for those of you that don't know, there are people probably sitting to your left or to your right that may have felt on different occasions, maybe on this very day, betrayed by the church. Is this something that we should be speaking into? Well, this is where we're going to go in our text. So what should be said? How should people respond? Well, the first thing in talking about this is we almost have to make sure we agree on terms. We need to define what white supremacy is. I almost feel like it's dangerous in many ways in our, in our world of media where we have access to everything, video clips, Instagram, Facebook, uh, Twitter. And so we can put out key examples of individual kind of racism and individual uh, examples of white supremacy. And they're true examples of supremacy, true examples of racism, but it's dangerous because those things become kind of our main diet of how we think about racism. And so you might be deluded into thinking that white supremacy is just something individual. It means that uh, I want to ensure that I don't uh, employ uh, certain um, uh, pejorative terms to describe a certain group of people. I want to make sure that I don't walk around with a sheet on. I want to walk, make sure that I don't burn crosses. I want to make sure that I don't have swastikas. I want to make sure that I don't uh, use the Confederate flag. We can talk about that at a different time. Uh, I want to make sure that I do these things that seem to be racist on the outside. And so if I can do what I can to not be an exterior racist, then I've done my job. And that's actually very dangerous because here's what it does. You easily can then remove yourself from the conversation if, as long as you know that behaviorally you haven't done the naughty things. Because we've made the mistake of making white supremacy something individual and emotional. How I feel about certain things. But you have to, we have to understand if we agree that white supremacy has less to do with what you feel individually and what is actually true systemically. What is true structurally. Because you see, you can have no malicious intent toward a people group and still be a part of a very supremacist structure. So do we get that? Please disabuse yourself of the idea that racism is only something individual. Please disabuse yourself of the idea that racism is only something that you just have to check your heart on and then you're good. Because you can have the best intentions and be a part of horrific impacts. What we often do is we hide. We hide from negative, disruptive impacts behind well intentions. That's what we do. Well, I didn't mean for that to happen, or I'm sure when those things happen, that's really what they thought they could do. That's what supremacy does. You, you have the privilege of hiding behind intent because the impacts don't impact you. So we can actually sit back and go, well, you know what? I don't think that was the intent. So let's just, and we call that giving grace, but actually that's not. And Paul's going to prove that. So let's make sure we agree on the terms here, because the church should respond to structural racism. When we talk about racism, when we talk about supremacy, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about structures here. We're not talking about just your individual heart. We want to make it individual because we want to make it about us. It gets less comfortable when you realize that we may indeed be a part of a structure 
We may be swimming in a pool of filthy water, and we have no idea we're wet. We are responsible. And Paul's going to show us this. You might wonder how we even get there, but Paul makes this point. How do you change the filthy water in which you're swimming? How do you repent? Well, we drain the water. We refill it with clean water. And what Paul's going to say is we do it zealously, we do it intentionally, and we do it with great urgency. See, this is what repentance looks like. What we're going to talk about is what does corporate repentance look like? We've talked a good deal at times about individual repentance, and that's big too. We won't talk about it here. What it looks like, we'll talk about it again and again and again. But what does it look like when, when sin has been pointed out, we acknowledge and recognize that sin is present, how do we then repent? What is the difference? Because that's really the answer to the question, what do we do with supremacy? How do we actually repent of it? How do we actually have fruit in accordance with Repentance. So Paul's going to make this point in our text. If you haven't been with us before, we've been in a series called The Body United. We've been in the book of 1 Corinthians. We just completed 1 Corinthians last week. We believe in going right through the scriptures. So we did. And we walked through several different examples of the ways in which the church in Corinth had divided along all of these different lines. At the end of the day, almost every, every sinful struggle that they had was rooted in pride was rooted in a desire to have a form of supremacy over their brothers and sisters. Every single one of them was rooted in a form of supremacy. Is that any shock to us? It shouldn't be, right? We, we love going back to the beginning. We understand what happened in Genesis, right? What happened in Genesis? Adam and Eve, they're told a certain thing by God. They're told not to eat of this tree of, of, of the knowledge of good and evil. Everybody thinks, well, what was the biggest sin? Well, the biggest sin was eating the fruit. We don't know what kind of fruit it was, but that was the sin. It was the disobedience. But the sin before the sin, we hear this, is always a sin beneath the sin. What was the sin beneath the sin? The sin was the way that the, that the serpent tempted Eve and Adam by saying, listen, if you eat this, you'll be like God. You'll know the things that God knows. In other words, you don't have to wait for him to give you the truth. You can know it on your own because you get to be the supreme leader of your own heart. Supremacy has always been what we want. Every time, anytime you struggle with hearing truth because you want your truth to be the truth, you want to be supreme. So in this case, if that's always been our struggle, then let's everybody admit right now, we struggle with some form of supremacy. If, if, if my gender gives me a form of supremacy, then I want to protect it, which is why misogyny happens. If my race gives me some sort of protection and privilege and power, then in my very sin nature, I'm going to want to protect it. That's how racism happens. If, if, if my nationality gives me some degree of protection, then I don't mind hurting people that aren't from this country because my nationality matters more to me. My supremacy matters more to me. I'm always in a struggle against my own desire for supremacy. If you don't believe that, you don't understand sin and you can't possibly understand the gospel. So we have, to, we have to go here. For those who are like, oh, I just don't want to have to talk about this topic, you better want to go through this topic or your heart might, be, might not be where it needs to be. 
Paul makes this point, and you look at the issues that they had. The Corinthians were boasting in their wisdom because their wisdom gave them supremacy. They boasted in their connection to their church leaders because they thought that gave them supremacy. They, 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 they gave themselves a lot of props for their degree of tolerance of immorality because they thought that gave them a form of supremacy. They, they took great pride in their legal rights to the point where they were suing each other because they loved that form of supremacy. Their views on marriage and singleness, they were puffed up because they thought one or the other gave them supremacy. Their Christian freedoms, whether or not to eat meat sacrificed to idols, one thought one was more mature, one thought one was less mature. Why? Who got to be the more supreme in the church? Supremacy. Folks were disenfranchising poorer Christians by abusing their privilege and consuming all of the communion meal before the working class folks could get there. Supremacy. Folks were boasting in their spiritual gifts. Which gift do you have? You have prophecy. You have tongues. You're more spiritual than this one. Supremacy. So Paul writes this letter and says, ultimately, your pride, your desire to boast in yourself, your desire to exalt yourself as preeminent and supreme over your other brothers and sisters is the cause for your division. And then he ends it. We talked about this last week. And he he ends it basically by saying you're using these multiple issues to make a case for your own supremacy. And then he tells them, instead of doing everything from a a position of self-preserving pride, instead in chapter 16 he says, do everything in love, in self-giving love. You know what he's calling them to do? Put your supremacy down. Put your desire for supremacy down. Now, if you look back at that church and go, man, they were really messed up, you don't look in a mirror often. This is us. This has always been God's call to his people. Ultimately, you sin against me because you love yourself more than me. If if I want to be supreme over God, you best believe I want to be supreme over you. I mean, you're cute and all, but I'm just telling you. So apparently the, the, the Corinthians, Paul, we already said that Paul writes 16 chapters and he writes this letter to the Corinthians and the Corinthians get this letter. And apparently... The Corinthians are so broken by Paul's letter to them. They are so broken. Because think about everything he's talked about. They're like, man, this is like our dude. He helped plant this church here, but he just lit us up. Like, he didn't even try to give us like a bunch of artificial commentary or artificial like props. He just said, y'all all wilding out, meaning your behavior is not actually becoming of a Christian. And we're going to have to do something to fix this because y'all don't have your stuff together. And ultimately, they write a letter back to Paul. We don't have that letter, but we have a good idea of what they said. Because all we know is that whatever it is that they said to him, all they kept talking about is how much they were crying, how broken they were, how much mourning they did over what he said. They were broken. They, what we're going to read here is really the right response when we're called out about sin and when we're called out about supremacy. And so I'm asking everybody here, be honest. Where does your heart go when, when it could be even potentially true that you or I or any of us might swim in the waters of supremacy? Do you go defensive first or do you go to mourning first? Do you go to what zealous repentance looks like? Or do you go into like Neo avoiding Agent Smith and fall, watching those bullets hit you? Let's see. Let's read First Corinthians, or Second Corinthians. Uh, Chapter 7, this letter, the second letter that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. We're going to start at at verse 8. 
Now that we have the context and we understand kind of what's happening here. Verse 8, he says this. He says, for even if I grieved you with my letter, I don't regret it. And if I regretted it, since I saw that the letter grieved you, yet only for a while, I now rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because your grief led to repentance. For you were grieved as God willed, so that you didn't experience any loss from us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, but worldly grief produces death. For consider how much diligence this very thing, this grieving as God wills, has produced in you. What a desire to clear yourselves. What indignation. What fear. What deep longing. What zeal. What justice. In every way, you showed yourselves to be pure in this matter. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Now, when you think about this, this is, this is, I always feel like this is my favorite passage in Scripture to talk about what repentance looks like. When I'm talking to individuals and couples, this is my favorite place to come. Because so many times when we talk about repentance, we think repentance is, I'm sorry. We think repentance is, didn't we already talk about that already? We think repentance is, listen, I cried before. I, you, you already told me that I hurt you once already. I feel like you're beating me up with this. We think that's repentance. And actually, repentance has actually less to do with just how you feel about a thing and actually what you do in response to the thing. So we can't just sit and hide behind good feelings and goodwill. That's actually not enough. Repentance is actually a verb. It's not just a noun. And so now, here, here Paul is kind of laying this, making this case and saying, this is what real repentance looks like. So keep this question going. In lieu, in lieu of what we know about white supremacy, how should we respond to white supremacy as the church? Well, first, look at the, this first verse we read. We respond to truth. We, we actually respond to other folks or to ourselves with courageous truth-telling. Because Paul actually courageously told the truth for 16 chapters and made a whole group of people cry. Made them cry, like the ugly cry, snot coming down. I didn't read the first letter they wrote, but I'm imagining in my sanctified imagination, as my pastor used to say growing up, that they were just all ugly crying. We respond by telling the truth. And we respond to the truth telling with mourning, not defensiveness. Look at what he said. He said, I know this grieved you, but I don't regret it. Now, this is such a big one. I know I grieved you, but I don't regret it. I'm not saying y'all need to start practicing saying this like this. Watch your heart, okay? But understand what's happening. Here's, here's the thing. The reason why I, I love this so much is because here's what we can't say anymore. I'm so tired of talking about things that divide us. I, I really wish we could just talk about the things that unite us. Everything's so divisive. Why can't we just be together? Can't we all just get along? You see, if Paul thought that way, there would be no 1 Corinthians. That's not what the gospel does. The point of the gospel was to show us all the ways that we don't look like the God who made us. Get us to a point where we mourn it. Then he remakes us to look like him again. So there is no possible way that you could ever look like him if he doesn't make you uncomfortable. 
I pray that you're uncomfortable. If you don't get uncomfortable, I wonder if the Holy Spirit is working. This is what, so when, when Paul says, listen, I know I said this stuff, and I know that it made you cry. I wasn't doing it just to make you cry, but I'm glad. This, oftentimes, when we try to avoid certain things, and it's only certain things that we get like that about, right? Like there are other sin issues. Would you do that? Like if somebody's in a marriage and somebody's doing something wrong in the marriage, you wouldn't go, listen, I just, I don't really want to talk about this aspect of the marriage because it just caused a lot of division between us. The division's already there. You know the, da- you know the danger? You know the danger with, with, when you think like that? And this is it's so, it's so crazy because so often, so often, we can, we can acknowledge maybe white supremacy for what it is, but we ought not romanticize its history. And so this, this gets into... Um, this gets into something that's very common for us as Americans. It's very common. And I think when I'm, this one thing that we love to say, this great refrain that we say as good Americans is something very dangerous because we actually communicate something about Christianity that actually isn't true. And so we're giving a false understanding of Christianity. If, the truth state, if this is a true statement, that America was founded as a Christian nation, we have a lot of explaining to do. So if, so, so if you come with that presupposition first, there's something skewed about the way either you view history or the way you view the gospel. Because here's the thing. If we start with, well, America was a Christian, uh, was a, was a Christian nation, then you have a problem because history doesn't bear it out. If I were to be honest, as controversial as this may be, this might be my last sermon before you, but as controversial as this may be, might as well go out swinging. The truth of the matter is that America was founded, by definition, as a white supremacist, misogynistic, and classist nation that appropriated counterfeit Christianity to advance its power and influence. Do you know your history? Because I'm asking, I'm asking, the way we define what Christian is, now, if Christianity for you is, let me pick and choose which parts of Jesus help me be supreme, then amen, this is a Christian nation. But if you're, if you're honest and we look at the history of Christianity in this country, what we see is that more often than not, those who were white and Christian were more often the crucifiers and not the crucified. So we have to sit in that. We have to sit in that first before we ever go any further and go, well, we know that's why it's hard when people say, I just want to go back to. What do you want to go back to? Because there's no Christian nation I want to go back to. I would love to go back to, if I didn't have to be the person that had to receive certain things, it'd be great. But folks who look like me, we don't get time machines to go back to that far. And there's a reason, because America was not as Christian as we like to say. So how do, we, how do we deal with that? Where was the church in that? There were churches all this time, y'all. There were people preaching Jesus, singing about Jesus, and uh, uh, engaging each other. But what is the history of our country? Let's just be so real here. The history of our country reads this way. After robbing land from indigenous peoples in the name of Christ, calling it the new world, which you can only do from a position of supremacy, right? It was here before you got here, but you get to call it new because it's new to you and you supreme. So, of course, it's new now. So we get to a place, call it the the new world from a position of supremacy, then eradicate 80 to 90% of the population, 
then engage in a revolution against other people we call tyrannical, and then pin the words, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator, because we got to sound spiritual, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Among these, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You know one, Rick, sign that you can, if you ever want to know if supremacy is present, ask yourself, does all mean all? That's it. Just ask yourself that question. Does all mean all? Did it? Who did it not include? Somebody said me. <laughs> There's a lot of me's. That's true. Look, what we know about history, what we know about what happened in the, in, uh, during the time when, when laws start being codified, what we know is that the only people who had the right to vote were land-owning white males. So, so if you were, if you were uh, uh, whether free or enslaved African, you were not included in the all. If you were a woman, you were not included in the all. If you were a poor white person, you were not included in the all. Was there supremacy there? So why, why are we afraid to just call that part out? But it is. So, so, so let's, if we started like this, if, if this is actually what's been hard-baked in from Jump Street, then why do you think just a thought and a prayer makes it go away? Why do we do that? So, so look at, look at the, the, the history here, what we see. All never meant all. That's when you know that the waters of supremacy are high. All doesn't mean all. And that's the reason why, frankly, when we have issues and people start to point out issues of injustice and people start pointing out ways in which justice is disproportionately applied, this is the reason why it doesn't make sense to say, my retort to you, oh person who is claiming that there's injustice, is all lives matter. Well, I'm sorry, but all has never meant all in this country, so why would that matter to me? See, there are people who are forced to know all of the history because they were on the receiving end. And there are people who don't have to because they haven't had to suffer. But see, that's not what the gospel should be doing. That's not the way the church should be functioning. I want to be able to mourn with you, which means if there's something in my life that has made, it, uh, made me shielded from that, but it's causing you to mourn, help me step into this with you. If I need to own areas where I'm complicit, help me do that. Because I want to look like Jesus more than I want to look like myself. This is what Paul is really calling them to. This is what true repentance looks like. So we go from there to the history that we all know. Slavery in the antebellum South, clear supremacy. Northern business owners benefiting from cheap cotton, clear supremacy. Civil War ends. And when the Civil War ends, what, where are we at? A lot of Southern Christians, many of which claim to be Christians, are now having to face a really tough reality. What's happening? Well, war's over, we lost, we're having to pay a lot for this, and on top of that, the ones that we fought so hard to keep enslaved now have voting rights. Oh my goodness. So you mean they now have the political power to actually unseat some of our political power, which is why when for about almost 10 years during the period known as Reconstruction, incredible gains were being made amongst people of color. 
You look at uh, the people who were in uh, the, the, the legislature in South Carolina, parts of Georgia, and even in Virginia and North Carolina. Tons and tons of African-Americans being voted into office because now you've got a state like Georgia, which in 1860, the census showed that Georgia was about 50% African people of African descent. Think about all of those. Now, they couldn't vote then. Then the next census, 1870, all of a sudden a major difference, right? So people are afraid. Oh, my goodness, these folks who we have been able to, to hold down and disenfranchise now have political power? And the scary thing is, the reason why, and anybody will be afraid, why? Because they're like, man, if they're human like us, which means if they want their supremacy, what is that going to mean for us? We were the only ones that were able to get supremacy. Why do they get it? And so now what ends up happening is for the next roughly 10 uh, to 12 years, reconstruction happens. We're starting to see like this new change in the country. And then the election of 1876. Some of y'all might remember. No, I'm just kidding. Nobody should remember that. The election of 1876 happens. It's the election between Samuel Tilden and Rutherford B. Hayes. Tilden was a New York, uh, New York guy. Rutherford B. Hayes was from Ohio. They're running for public office. They're running for president. And it was a very contentious, often people will say the most, as much as we've seen some hotly contested presidential elections, this still might be the most hotly contested election we've ever seen in this country. Because what happened is Rutherford B. Hayes ended up winning, ended up not winning the popular vote, but was close to winning the electoral vote. And so now there's a big issue here because ultimately he was sitting, uh, he was sitting at 100, Samuel Tilden was sitting at uh, 184 electoral votes and Rutherford B. Hayes was sitting at 165. There were three states that had not yet given their votes in, Florida, South Carolina, and Louisiana. These are three southern states, southern states that were extremely upset with what had already happened in Reconstruction. And so what ends up happening? They end up saying, listen, Rutherford B. Hayes, we will give you our electoral votes if you agree to remove all of the federal troops that were here guarding the rights of black people to vote. If it's known as the Hayes Compromise of 1877. Look it up. In there, they basically say they, they list a number of things that they want to happen, but the key thing is ensure that you get rid of federal troops out of the South, ensure that you put one of our own politicians on your cabinet, and ensure that we get to do and handle the black folks the way we want without Northern aggression. You do that, and we will allow you to be the president of the country. He agrees. He becomes president. He removes troops. What happens after that? Black folks don't get the right to vote again in the South until 1965, about 90 years. Is that supremacy? And when flowers grow in the soil of supremacy, what comes out? So is it easy to say, well, no, let's not go back to that. Let's just talk about now. We don't do anything else that way. Now, the bigger question is, what was the church doing when all of this was happening? Where was the church? It's not enough to just say, well, here's where we are now, so let's just talk about that. No, we actually have to say, what has been the problem? Why is it that it seems like that what the church does is just follows the cultural mores of the majority, and then as soon as the culture shifts, then the church says, oh, yeah, we are bad. We were wrong on that. So you see, when we talk about white supremacy, we can't talk about it as something that's out there. We have to talk about something that's actually present here. 
It's always been present here. And so now we've, we, what happens after that is we have a, a time period of Jim Crow that goes all the way through for another 90 years. All of the folks that were able to be for about eight to 10 years, they were able to be in public office. They were doing incredible things. There's great stories you hear about people, guys like Robert Smalls, people that did incredible things in their respective states. All of a sudden, Jim Crow comes, federal troops are gone, black people are being killed for even trying to vote. Several people are no longer voting, and voting rolls go down by 50% or more. Never got back to those numbers again until 65. So when we look at the history of supremacy, now you realize how it's not just... Look, most of these folks who were, who were standing by watching, they weren't putting on sheets. A lot of times it's easy to kind of, even in other communities, maybe even in black communities, if we don't know our own history, it's easy to be able to go, yeah, everybody was over there doing X, Y, and Z, which is normally a constant uh, defense that's given. Well, my family weren't a part of the KKK. Well, my family, weren't, they weren't one of the people that were doing that. That's true. But, but was anybody there in their churches speaking out? When there were politicians coming up advocating for these disenfranchising policies, how did your family vote? How did they talk about these things? Did they talk about these things? How did churches talk? If we had the time, I would love to be able to regale you with the stories of so many sermons from churches and pastors in the South. I have copies of them. You'd be shocked to know the kinds of things they're saying to encourage their congregants to vote a certain way in order to keep power where they thought power belonged. But again, if you come from a privileged position, you never have to learn that. And so in all of this, Paul is showing us that, A, being told this information, ways in which supremacy is present amongst people who claim to be Christians, we ought to hear it, and it ought to make us mourn. It ought to make us feel uncomfortable. It ought to make us mad. And, and, and if it makes us defensive, great. Let's talk about why it's making me defensive. Let's talk about why it's making me feel a little squirrely. Let's talk about why in my head, some of you right now might be already thinking of return salvos for, well, but what about this? What about this? What about this? So often that's rooted in the sin part first. And then he says next, he says, he says, I now rejoice not because you were grieved, but because your grief led to repentance for you aggrieved as God willed so that you didn't experience any loss from us. So now the point is not just grieving. Grieving is one thing. We can even have all the knowledge of these. There are some people like, okay, I know this history. I know this stuff. It's, it's sad. It makes me, and sometimes we'll use language like, that's just disgusting. That makes me sick. I can't believe people would do such things. I'm so glad I don't do things like that. Still missed it. Because the point is not just to make sure I feel bad. The point is, let me make sure I feel so bad that it moves me to take real steps of real repentance. Now, you might be thinking, and we'll talk about it in a minute, you might be thinking, well, wait a minute now, how do I repent for something that I didn't do? That's a, that's a common question, right? How do I repent for something that has nothing to do with me? Like, I'm not, I can't do anything about what uh, my, my ancestors did, which is true. Can't do anything about that. 
Matter of fact, you don't even necessarily need to, quote unquote, give a formal apology about what ancestors did. The key is not necessarily apologizing for being whatever uh, ethnic group that you're a part of. The question is, am I committed to undoing the structures that my ancestors built because I know how it affects my brothers and sisters? See, that's what repentance starts looking like. But see, because you, I, we want to make everything so individual, we start getting real personal and real... Oh, I don't like how that makes me feel because I loved my great-grandparents and they were really, really wonderful. And that, that's great. I'm sure, they were great-grandparents. That's, that's awesome. The question is, do we have a heart that zealously seeks to undo some of the damage that was done? Now, if you're like, well, you know, I hear that, but I don't really know. I don't really know if that's something that I should see uh, in Scripture. I don't know that Scripture kind of commands that I do that. Well, you know, the funny thing is, and this is where, again, we kind of pick and choose what parts of the Bible we love to hold to, but you do realize that corporate repentance has always been throughout the Scriptures. We love to bring up independent repentance, individual repentance, and it's vitally important. You're not a Christian if you don't do it. But, but, but you realize that throughout the Scriptures, there are several places where the people of God are actually held responsible for what ancestors did. If you remember in Joshua 7, the sin of Achan starts taking things. They were supposed to go through the city and not take any of the things that were there. He snuck and took some of the things. All of a sudden, God makes it clear to Joshua, they're sinning in the camp. Somebody's done something. Somebody's taken something, held on to something. They have to figure out who it is. Joshua and all of the people are having to actually give repentance on behalf of the one person who did something sinful within their nation. Or if you go to Daniel 9, Daniel 9, I want to read it because Daniel 9 actually... Is, a, is, is an even better example. In Daniel 9, Daniel starts praying. Darius is, is the king at the time. And he starts praying. And he's realizing all of these sins that the children of Israel have committed. He realizes for generations all of the sins that they've been guilty of. And look at how he, what he says. He says, I'm going to start in verse 5, we have sinned done wrong, acted wickedly, rebelled, and turned away from your commands and ordinances. We've not listened to your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name, to our kings, our leaders, our fathers, all the people of the land. Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but this day, public shame belongs to us. You, you see the plural language that's used there? You see the pronoun that's used there? This isn't just individual. He says shame belongs to us, the men of Judah, the residents of Jerusalem and all Israel, those who are near and those who are far. In all the countries where you have banished them because of the disloyalty they have shown toward you. Lord, public shame belongs to us, our kings, our leaders, our fathers, because we have sinned against you. Corporate repentance has always been a part of what God's people are supposed to be about. Corporate repentance is always supposed to be something that we can't shield ourselves from because we didn't do it. We're, you know why? Because we're supposed to feel connected to each other. If it's a family and somebody in the family does something wrong, we all feel the weight of that. Yeah. And so, no, that's not an excuse. It's not an excuse just to say, well, I wasn't there. I didn't do it. I didn't make the decision. I'm an individual. Judge me on my individual stuff. No, God doesn't judge you on that. God doesn't judge us on that. Yes, our individual for the sake of our salvation, yes. But how repentance looks, that's bigger than us. So when we think about <laughs> supremacy, are we thinking about it corporately or are we thinking about it individually? And then verse 10, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Worldly grief produces death. I love this because 
truly grieving sin in the way God grieves sin is supposed to lead to true repentance. Grieving sin the way God grieves it should lead us to repentance. And it's interesting the way Paul words it. Paul says that it's supposed to be, he says, he says godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. This is deep because what he's saying is that your, your salvation is tied to this kind of repentance. Now, this isn't saying your work of repentance saves you. What it's saying is if you've truly been saved the way you claim you have, this is the fruit that should come out. A repentance, this, this, this godly repentance. <clears throat> what does it look like to repent this way? What does it look like? He, he starts comparing godly grief to worldly grief. I think worldly grief is an example of, I'm sorry I got caught. <laughs> it can be really easy to say, well, <clears throat> I'm, really, I'm really frustrated because I, I know I did wrong, and I know consequences are coming, so I'm sorry. But that's more worldly grief. <clears throat> Godly grief is much different. Godly grief is I'm mourning because I know all the ways that I've hurt the heart of God and I've hurt you. And so I'm going to do whatever I can in my power to fix that. Think about that individually. When you're repenting to each other individually, our repenting should actually be I'm going to do the work of correcting the reason that caused this fissure to begin with. It's not just let's agree to disagree. It's not just, you know, you feel that way, I feel that way, or whatever. Sometimes we can do that if it's not causing major division. But this is causing division. We need to be reconciled to each other, which means I've got to do the work of reconciliation with you. I've got to sit here, sit in this, not run away from it. See, this is what it means to, to truly repent. So now when he starts walking through and he starts explaining, hey, listen, this is the repentance I saw that happened to you. Paul says your repentance is tied to your salvation. So then verse 11, he tells us, so here's what it looks like. This verse 11, remember this, circle this, underline this. This right here is the key. Anytime you have to think about repentance individually or corporately, these are the adjectives that should come to mind. So ask yourself this question, is this true of my heart? Please be honest. Is this true of my heart? Says in verse 11, consider how much diligence this very thing, this grieving as God wills, has produced in you. What a desire to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what deep longing, what zeal, what justice, in every way you showed yourself to be pure in this matter. Do you see those adjectives? Do you see the way that he describes what our repentance should look like? You realize it's not just intellectual assent. It's not even just emotionally finding yourself in the right place has actually very little to do with that now. The emotional part started, right? The grieving should happen. The mourning should happen. We should be thankful for the mourning because it leads us to the repentance, right? Not avoiding it. So the mourning is important, but it doesn't end there. He says, diligent anger and zeal for justice. This consistent, godly anger, this enthusiasm for justice. This is how we clear ourselves. So, so again, with respect to how we have defined white supremacy, can you say that you are zealous, that you are diligent, that you have a deep hatred for it, that you with great longing seek to clear yourself in the matter and hopefully continue to make sure if there's ever any aspect of this we see, we have a heart posture that says, I'm very much against this. I'm speaking out against this. I'm saying something to correct this. 
especially amongst people who claim to be believers. Now, there are a number of ways to manifest this repentance as we go forward. A lot of ways that this can look. But let me just talk about a few ways that it should not look. And I know this, I, this might step on every single toe you have for all of us. But we got to talk about this. What are some examples of what repentance should not look like? Well, the first example, something you've heard here before a couple years ago. The idea that we don't see color. Or a very, another common Christian thing to say, listen, there's, no, there's only one race. I, there's not a whole lot of race. I, I don't think about that. There's just one race, the human race. And I don't think about anything else. I don't see color because I know it's just made up. I know race is made up. I, I learned that. I know that's the case. So I don't, I don't see color and you shouldn't either. Now listen, genetically, it's true. The Human Genome Project in the 90s proved that uh, there really is no substantive difference DNA-wise between all of us at all. But here's the thing. Genetically, it's true, but sociologically, it's not. You see, you can't just create a board game and then say, hey, I'm going to create a board game in such a way that the green pieces get extra advantage to win sooner and the blue pieces don't. And then when people complain about blue and green, color them all one color and say, what's the problem now? You don't get to do that. We don't get to just say, listen, I know that these things were created in order to protect supremacy and to protect power and protect privilege, but now that it's being called out, I'll just take the labels off. But the board's already laid out. You don't have the benefit. Now, if you come from a position of privilege, you can, because you control the board, but the people who are still playing are going, no, it, it really doesn't matter if you choose not to see me as this way. This is actually how the board was made. I'm still stuck here. Can we still talk about the structure now? Or we might say, you know, the reason I don't see race, I choose not to see race, I know it's not a real thing, and the only people who bring up race, they're the real racists. You heard that? You know, if you, it, I don't like talking about it, and the only people that talk about it are the ones that are the real racists, because I don't bring up race, and you did, as if bringing up the actual issue of race makes you the racist. You know what that's like? That's like saying, listen, I don't like anything that's going to cause division in my body. And if you're an oncologist and your job is to identify the cancer in my body, your job is to give me whatever potential remedies for this cancer is present. I don't like you now because you called out cancer in me. You're the cause of my cancer. Does that make sense? It's impossible for you to look at a person, for me to look at a person and say, by you calling out something that is actually broken, you're the cause of the brokenness. You're the cause of why it is that you feel the way that you feel. It's impossible. You realize that many of us, if that's our logic, we're just content to slowly and blissfully die of cancer. We're content to say, you know, I don't, I don't want to see it, and I feel bad when you call it out on me. Doc, I, 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 I chose to view my body in a healthy way. I, I chose to view my body as something that's way more functional than you're claiming it is. And so I know now that I'm feeling really bad and you're the cause because the news you gave me made me feel bad. I would rather not listen to you anymore. That's what we do with race. It's not a, that's, not a, that's not an excuse. That's not even a rebuttal. It's just really bad logic. But it feels good. And when you come from a position of privilege, you can say that. But for those who know, listen, there are still structures in a way where there are things that are advantage for people who are so-called certain races. So I don't have the benefit. I can't just take the approach that you take and go, I just choose not to see color because the system still does. Then we've got uh, the, 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 the classic, 
well, I can't be, I can't be a, a, a part or a purveyor of white supremacy or racism because I have close friends who are people of color. Or I date or marry a person of color. Or I have children. Or I adopted a person of color. I can't possibly then be that. Some of y'all got these faces like, please don't say what you're about to say. Here, here, here's, here's the thing. Here's the problem with that. The problem with that is this. You, we almost think that close proximity to people of color now absolves us from any of the racism that's in our heart, and it doesn't. All that does is it creates a way in which you can cast people as the exceptions to the rule. Wow. Well, they, you know, I've got clo- I can't possibly be racist because I married this, or I have this child, or I have this best friend, or my frat brothers, my sorority sisters. We were this and this and this and that, and all that means is in your mind, now it could be, you, you may not have any of that in your heart, but you could and just say, but they were just some of the good ones. They were just some of the good ones. They, so, so like you could still be a part of a supremacist structure and fancy yourself as not being racist or a part of that. And yet in your mind, you're still thinking. So I remember this because those of us, if you've ever been a, if you've been a person of color in a predominantly white environment, I was at a church where this was definitely the case. And I'll never forget when uh, being there, you feel this pressure. You're like, okay, I'm there. Uh, the only black person ever hired here, including janitor, which I thought was impressive. And they're like, hey, we, 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 we're hiring you on, and you're going to be there. Now, looking back, it felt a little tokenish, but at the time, I didn't know, so I'm there. And I'm getting to know people, and I'm, and I'm being asked to do different things. And, and I remember, after leaving, coming down here, planting the church, getting a call from a certain person, and they're like, you know, a nice friend of the family, and said, hey, listen, I heard a sermon that you pre- preached at another church down there, and, 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 and you were talking about race, and, and it really just kind of, it really surprised me, because the whole time you were here, I didn't even really realize that you were black. And he thought that was a good thing. He, he thought that was actually a way to show I'm post-racial. When really all that said was, hey, the pressure that you probably felt to just assimilate enough to survive made it impossible for me to see the other half of who you are. Wow. No idea. Again, because the intent wasn't bad, but the impact still was. Yeah. So we don't have that luxury. I hope we don't feel like we have that luxury to just say, well, I've got this friend over here, so I can't possibly be that. Because what that does, and this is something for people of color can often feel that pressure to assimilate into that system, to not address or talk about certain issues. Some people actually enjoy being the exceptional one. Some people are like, hey, I've got a seat at the table. I want to hold on to this seat for as long as I can, so I better not bring up any of these issues. Is that what repentance looks like? No, it isn't. So whether you are Anglo, whether you're a person of color, There is a responsibility we all have to sit at the table. There's a responsibility we all have to do the work of reconciliation. There's a responsibility we all have to engage the issues, to engage the history. And if you're too tired, you can't be too tired to be a reconciler because you're saying you're too tired to be a Christian. So we're in this situation together. This isn't just point out these people, bad people. No, we are in a bowl that now the weight is felt differently. It's not 50-50. We can't do that. We can't even, that would be disingenuous to say. The weight is felt differently, but everybody should be at the table. And so when we, when that rebuttal that, well, I can't be a racist because of this, sorry, that doesn't happen. 
And that also means that if we're people of color and we don't engage this, you realize that just being a person of color doesn't necessarily make you an ally of justice. It, it doesn't. You can actually be counter to the cause because of wanting to protect whatever degree of assimilation and whatever degree of supremacy and privilege I've been given at the table. That's actually not what a Christian should look like either. And then there is the, look, I'm just so tired of talking about this issue. Can we just get over it, please? I'm so tired. Like every time I look up, this issue's coming up. Oh, here we go again. Oh, okay, this issue just came up again. You know, I heard a preacher say this one time. Somebody said, hey, why, why do you keep, somebody in the church said, why do you keep preaching the, the, on the same issues all the time? Why do you keep talking about the same issues all the time? And he said, when y'all stop doing the same sins all the time, I'll stop talking about the same issues all the time. I don't know if you know this, but the Bible does a lot of repeating. The scriptures, how often does Paul say, let me remind you, let me remind you, let me, you ignorant children, let me remind you, let me, why does he do that? Because we're prone to forget. So if you get to a point, oh, why do we have to talk about this again? Do you do that with any other sin that God addresses? How many times is grace brought up? Do you get tired of grace? How many times do we, how many times do we talk about the love of Jesus? Do you get tired of talking about love? No. But when we talk about justice, we talk about racism, now I'm tired. That's what supremacy looks like. Because you have the luxury of just walking away and not having to think about or talk about it. That's not what the gospel looks like. But that is what supremacy looks like. So when we start talking about, well, you know, I, I don't really want to uh, talk about that. I really wish that I didn't have to talk. I'm so tired of talking about that. What did Paul say? What did Paul say that repentance looks like? What zeal? What does zeal mean? That means that I am willing to exhaust myself until I see what it is that God says the gospel should look like. Whatever, whatever it looks like in order to be reconciled, I'm going to be zealous and diligent until I see it. And if I die before I see it, I will die zealously pursuing it. I don't have the luxury of being too tired. I don't have the luxury of saying I'm done with it. I, if I'm a Christian, I need to keep pursuing it. So I can't just say, well, because, listen, we all have different things we can be zealous about. If, 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 I, I'm going to throw it, if there was a, a concert that was coming out, insert a person for you. I don't know who you like. Toby Keith, Kendrick Lamar. I'm just throwing out names. I don't know. But imagine that there's like an incredible artist that you really want to see. And I'm like, hey, there's just a few things you need to do to, do to get these free tickets. I would see zeal materialize. <laughs> we know what zeal is. So let's not play dumb. So why can't we be zealous about this? What stops us from being zealous about this? Because we're still holding on to the vestiges of supremacy, and we don't want to name it. We don't want to own it. We don't want to repent from it. Look, repenting from sin is hard because sin feels comfortable, including supremacy. It feels comfortable because now you're having to like, argue against your own self-interest on some level. That doesn't feel good, but that's what the gospel calls us to do. True holistic repentance means Grieving what God grieves, having a hatred for sin, zealously pursuing more than just non-sin, but anti-sin. We've talked about this before, but we got to say it again. There is a substantive difference between being a non-something and an anti-something. There's a big difference between just being a non-racist and an anti-racist. What does the gospel call you to be? Anti. Anti. Zealously pursuing. Anti. Anywhere where I see something that doesn't look like Jesus, I'm anti. It's not enough to just be non. I don't want to just be a non-murderer. I want to be an anti-murderer. 
It's not enough for me to be just a non-liar. I should be against lies and deception. It's not enough for me to be, when we talk about, we talked about this before, when we talk about racist, and I, and I have to think about what is the difference between non-racist and anti-racist. I'm going to say this. Replace the C with a P. Is it enough to just be a non, a person that just doesn't sexually assault? Or should you be so against structures that make sexual assault easy, that does not punish it, that does not go after those who purvey such things? Should you be anti that or just non that? See, one is rooted in your individualism. At least I'm not that. I'm good. My hands are clean. Versus I'm anti that. And any structure that enables that, I want to break it. I want to shatter it with the zeal and the hatred of sin that God has. See, the gospel calls you to anti-racism. The gospel calls me to anti-racism, not just non-racism. So stop bragging about not using the N-word. Let's stop bragging about not going to the crazy Klan rally. Let's stop bringing up stories. I knew a person who did that. I'm not as bad as them. That's, that's not... That's great. Kudos. Here's your woke biscuit. But at the end of the day, what we really need to be is about anti-racism. Google woke, y'all. If y'all don't know by now, it's, it's, it's been a little while. So that means that if there are policies, and this is where I want to get before we close, this is where I want to get. That means that if once we move off of the whole individual racism thing, now we get to move to the place where we start talking about structures. Well, where are structures built? They're built in policy making. They are. Who gets to vote the people that make policies? We do. The people who claim to be Christians. So it's not enough to just say, I deal with these kinds of issues in my prayer closet. You see, what God is saying is that your prayer closet should manifest itself in the ballot box. I don't care what it is. Pick an issue, whatever it is. Our, what, what I claim to be praying for, when I say your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, do you think that there's racism in heaven? I hope y'all can say <laughs> no. If some of y'all are looking for racism in heaven, we got a talk that we need to have. I'm not saying you'll be kicked out. I'm just saying we need to talk. If we know there's not going to be racism in heaven, and we're supposed to be praying and longing for heaven to look, for here to look like the heaven that's coming, then why do we not stand back and go, man, anytime there's racism, I'm, I'm vociferously fighting against this thing. Now, it's not enough to just fight in my prayer closet, because listen, it took a lot more than thoughts and prayers to create the broken structures. So it's going to take more than thoughts and prayers to break it down. If I take a shovel and I rearrange your garden so that only certain flowers get water, it's going to take a shovel to fix it and get water to the rest of them. So if it took policymaking to break it, it's going to take policymaking to fix it through and to the glory of God. That's it. So ask yourself the question, does my prayer closet manifest itself in the ballot box? Locally, federally, what does it look like? Which means if there are policies that all of a sudden uh, uh, start showing that, that, that there, there's injustices to Latino or Latina groups, we zealously oppose it. If there are Christians who use scriptures falsely to justify injustice, which has been the story in this country, we zealously fight against it. Thoughts and prayers, not enough. Laws that get passed and, and enforced they're the primary way that we undo systemic oppression. If you just look at history, this is why so many Christians, we don't read history. We just don't. We like the feel-good part of the gospel. But overlaying history over the gospel will help us understand how not to make the mistakes. So when we think through history, 
And when we think through what it actually looked like in order for systems of oppression to be broken, listen, all the speeches in the world, they were wonderful. They were great. Showing videos of people and the things, the horrible things that happened, they were great. But it actually wasn't until real, real substantive policies were passed that anything actually changed. Christians love to, to talk about how great my heart was changed, but we don't care about how great the structures were changed. But that's actually how we know the kingdom of God is here. When we start saying, I want to see structures that are changed that look more like the kingdom that's coming. So we now are in a situation where we have to say, Lord, how do I, how do I make sure that, that there's this holistic view of repentance that goes beyond thoughts and prayers, tweets and posts, that goes to the most systemic way, the most, uh, uh, the, 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 the most holistic way that real changes happen structurally? Why do I have to hit this so hard? Because I'm going to tell you, and I think all of us could agree, that many, especially, but not only, but especially white evangelical churches, they stretch and contort themselves in so many ways possible without acknowledging white supremacy. We stretch to the point where, and this, this is what's so sad, so many times churches and Christians will stretch all the way around to not have to get there. To, you know what happens when you stretch further than you should? You get a hernia. And the church has a hernia right now. The church has a hernia of deep-seated supremacy and goes out of its way to not do it. You know what God is calling? God is saying, get out of your Christian yoga downward dog position, get back on your knees, and then let your feet go to the ballot box and show me repentance. This is what it's always meant for American Christians. Now, it's different amongst different countries who don't have the ability to do that, but we actually do. So we're called to care. And we're called to feel, and we're called to pray, and we're called to walk, and we're called to move. God is saying, be zealous about clearing yourselves in the matter of white supremacy. So here, here are final thoughts. If you, believe, if you believe that the cross is at the center of the gospel, but you refuse to listen to, to sit with, to lament, to teach, to preach about the pain that white supremacy and racism is inflicted on your, on your brown and black brothers, you might be worshiping a gospel of white supremacy. If you believe that the incarnation of Christ is at the center of the gospel, that Jesus took on flesh and was willing to bear our brokenness, our pain, our sin, our shame, but you're too uncomfortable to ever quite allow yourself to sit in the shoes of Trayvon Martin's mother and father, Eric Garner's wife, Sandra Bland's mother, Heather Heyer's mother, and you refuse to forsake your need to be right for long enough to sit and mourn with people of color in our own congregation, you might be worshiping a gospel of white supremacy. If you believe that Jesus has won victory over death, sin, and decay, and the grave on Easter Sunday, but you're more excited about how many souls can be reached and saved, then we are excited about delivering from the crushing weight of police brutality incarceration, profiling, and surveillance, you might be worshiping at the gospel of white supremacy. If you believe that the power of, 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 of the confession of sin is essential in acknowledging our brokenness before God and to receive the gift of a pardon for sin through Jesus Christ our Lord, but we're not willing to be and lead churches that are multi-ethnic, black, Hispanic, Asian, or immigrant in a public confession of structural racism, internalized racism and white supremacy, you might be worshiping a gospel of white supremacy. Let's stop the yoga stretching. Let's stop avoiding the issue. 
Let's call it out. Let's spend time in it. Let's actually sit in a place where we can be humble and repent and then hit our feet and manifest what repentance looks like. That means we stop being defensive, stop being evasive. And the last thing I'll say is, if you're a majority culture Christian, stop asking people of color to do your work for you. People of color, when people are doing the work and people are being allies to this cause, then we sit. We don't just get tired and walk away. We don't get tired and get too bitter to deal with it. We sit and we engage because we're called to be reconcilers as well. This isn't just a one-way street. Yes, there will be people who have to do a little bit more walking because there's a lot more learning that needs to be done. But it's a two-way street. And so what we need to do is there are going to be times. I get, I get conversations from people or I get questions from people and they're like, hey, can you, just, can you just walk me through all of these things so that I can understand it? See, that's what supremacy gets to do. I don't want to have to do the work to really engage this because I've never had to. Will you do my work for me? That's why people of color get exhausted. For some of you who may not know, like, well, why are they just so bitter? No, people are just exhausted because they constantly have to have the same conversations and do all of the work when it's like a cursory Google search would answer so many of your questions. So that means that when we're at the table and we know that, hey, okay, we're all here together. I've been doing, maybe it's like, hey, I'm a majority uh, uh, um, culture person and I've engaged this and I've read some of these things and I'm trying to get some, now can we talk? Absolutely. Let's get into it. Let's talk. Let's, let's dig into these things. But it's not the job of people to do all the work for you. There's nothing else that we would function like that. There's nothing else we would do like that. There's nobody else that we would say, hey, I'm on my way to medical school, but, but, but you already finished. You're a doctor now. Can you just give me everything I need to know? You're, you're a chemist now. Can you just tell me everything I need to do to, to synthesize a methylated alkaloid? Can you teach me how to do that? No, you need to go to school. You need to go take the test that I did. You need to go and go through all of the remedial training that I had to in order to get this. Now, when we both gone through the training, we can sit and build each other up and go, okay, so now here's maybe some things where you miss, here's some things where I miss. But we got to actually do the work. We all need to do the work. This is what reconciliation has to look like. This is what it means. Listen, if you don't want to do that, my question is, how zealous are you? Zeal, diligence, anger. This is what we're supposed to feel, y'all. This is not just fun to talk about. We have to be zealous. We have to be indefatigable. We have to be to a point where we're like, I don't care if I exhaust myself doing this. I'm doing this because the glory of God is worth it. This is what it's going to mean for us to be the church that God's called us to be. It's not our job. It's nobody's job to be our seeing eye dog. What would happen if repentance looked like this? Y'all just think, think, what would happen if we set the pride aside, we set defensiveness aside, and actually repentance looked like this? What, what would our churches look like? How irresistible would the love, the mercy, the grace, the power of God be then? May we be a people that discusses, that grieves, that zealously repents, that diligently seeks to clear ourselves of white supremacy. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I'm reminded that you tell us that 
through what Jesus has done for us, you've given us this ministry of reconciliation, which means that it's only because we've been reconciled to you properly that we can be reconciled to each other. But God, while that has given us comfort and while we have quoted that and we have said that and we have sung that, God, I have to ask the question, have we truly been completely reconciled to you? When I look at the ways that we have not been reconciled to each other. So God, while it would be nice to be able to wrap these kinds of things up with a pretty bow and and make us all feel like everything is good, God, let us go away knowing things aren't good yet. Let us go away having a deep longing and a deep mourning for all the ways that it's not done. Don't let us off the hook. Give us that deep mourning. Lord, bring mourning of tears, a godly sorrow that is yearning for your kingdom here. God, we are a church that is hurting. We are a church that is longing for genuine reconciliation. We are a country that is hurting. And we are a country that is longing for reconciliation. So God, redefine our terms. Redefine our hearts. Give us your love for each other. God, give us a deeper love for you. Do this now. In the matchless name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. As we come to the table, y'all, this is, this really is what this table is supposed to be about. This table is supposed to include what we're called to be individually, but it's also called to, 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 it includes what we're supposed to be corporately to each other, who we're supposed to be to each other. If we can engage issues like this, then there's a huge degree to which we ought not be able to come and take communion. Because ultimately, when Paul says to examine ourselves, and you remember the context there in 1 Corinthians 11, he's talked about all these ways that people have not overlooked each other through their own views of supremacy of themselves. They've overlooked each other. When he says examine yourself, he's not just saying examine to make sure you don't have individual sin. He's saying ensure that you have not sinned against your brother and sister, that you've not overlooked them, that you have not engaged supremacy over them. If that's the case, examine and don't take. Let this be a time of repentance. Let's be honest with our hearts, Lord. Either A, I'm on this side and I don't even want to engage it, or I might be a person of color and I'm just exhausted. I don't want to talk to people. I've got bitterness here. All those things need to be rooted out because we can't come to the table if those things are true. So take this time before we come, really examine your hearts. God, is this true? Is is the love that you have for me first, is that something that takes supremacy in my heart? Do I realize that I can't even be supreme over my own heart? And if I recognize that, and my my heart lies in submission to you, then do I see ways that I still seek out supremacy over others? Lord, break that in me. Let Let that be this moment where you truly are evaluating, God, is this true? If it is, if God is truly breaking your heart, bringing you to a place of repentance, which is what the table should always bring, then this table is yours. If not, if you're kind of, you know, I just don't know that I feel that way. I don't know that I think that's even my job. I don't know that I think that the gospel calls me to this. Then don't come and and fake, don't come and create, don't come and put a mask on because Jesus loves you and he wants to meet you where you are. And he wants to break you where you are. So wait. Don't come. Don't proclaim something that's not true. We, Jesus wants it to be true of your heart before you ever come and proclaim it. As our volunteers come, we want to remind you that we do communion here by the process of intinction. So what that means is that you'll come down the middle aisle, starting in the back. 
Take a piece of gluten-free bread, dip it in wine or juice as you see fit. Y'all, when we come, like, we can take a moment. Just take a moment, even before you come, and just really examine. Really ask yourself, is this something that I know that I'm called to? Have I acknowledged this? Is this something I'm zealous about? If not, okay, let's repent. Because ultimately, we don't have to conjure up zeal. Let the Spirit of God bring the zeal. Yearning for Him, yearning for His image, yearning to be close to Him should produce this. So if it's not, you probably, I probably need more of who Jesus is. So examine that. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, He gave thanks for the Passover meal. Before I even say this, I think about the fact that you know who was sitting at the at the Passover meal? Judas. The one that would betray him. The one that would actually turn against. And he's still at this table, this intimate table stands there, knowing this one that's going to betray and still say, this is my body given for you. Take and eat of it. And in the same way, he takes the cup. He took the cup and he said, this cup is, is my blood poured out for the remission of sins, the blood of a new covenant take and drink of it. Paul says that as often as we do this, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. Why are we doing that? Because we're saying ultimately we know the evidence of the brokenness is here. The evidence that we can't do this perfectly is here. We don't use that as an excuse. We don't use the excuse of, well, nothing will get better until Jesus comes, so let's just stand pat. We don't do that. But we mourn with hope. We say, we realize we're not going to get this perfect. We realize that we're going to mess up. We're going to keep coming back to the table, repenting, trying to get it right again. But we know we're not doing it in vain because one day Jesus is returning to make this perfect again. He's returning so that we will never have to repent ever again. We will never have to shed tears to each other ever again. We will never have to be in a place where we have to say, I've hurt you. I haven't seen you. I haven't heard you. I have not loved you. We're hoping and trusting in that because we know we can't do this by ourselves. If this is true for you, if this is where your trust is, if this is where your zeal is, if this is where your confidence is, then come, taste and see that the Lord, our great reconciler, is indeed good. Let's eat together.